Okay, good morning, everyone. Uh, lovely to be part of Easter Sunday with you all, even though remotely so. Uh, we've seen again this week that uh, death is very much a, a part of life. Now, that's a cliche, I know, but, but it's a true cliche. Um, I googled it this week, and apparently more than 157,000 people in our world die on average every day. Uh, that's about 57 million people a year. And when you put that in the context of 5,000 years of history, um, that gets to be an absolutely staggering figure, a staggering death toll. And of course, uh, the death toll is, is, got, is a very personal thing, isn't it? Because that includes countless uh, unique people, amazing people, um, people in, who in their day were, were larger than life. Uh, people whose influence in the world uh, continues long after they died. But in the end, death got them all. But this morning, I want to talk to you about the person who defied the great equalizer, uh, that death, the person who reversed uh, the finality of death by coming back from the grave, the person of whom we must say life was very much a part of his death, See, today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus Christ is the person who so altered the course of history that we still talk about him 2,000 years later. We still mark the event on our calendars 2,000 years later. And most importantly, we continue to be confronted by the consequences of his death and resurrection more than 2,000 years later. We pick up the story in uh, John chapter 20. And the first point, if you're following through in the notes, uh, King Jesus is dead. And you can't argue about the finality of death. Or can you? Well, we all know that words of impact, um, words are very, very powerful. Jesus had a rising message that attracted so many over three years of his ministry. But we all know that what people see impacts us far more than what we hear. And so the issue we're confronting is dead means dead. And here's the, here's the problem for us. Jesus said he was God. Jesus said he was God's Messiah, God's king come into the world to reestablish God's rule and establish a kingdom which would never, ever end. Jesus said he was God's long-awaited savior, come to rescue God's people by dealing with their sin, giving them new hope for the future. Rising word, rising message. But if we pick up the story this morning, the king is now dead. Beaten, humiliated, ridiculed, crucified as a common criminal, bayoneted or speared, and finally taken down, dragged away and buried. Now, Dave, Dave Butt took us through that awful story on Friday. Now, surely that has to be the final criteria for evaluating everything Jesus said and did. A rising message over three years, but the king is dead. And you can't argue with death, can you? It's not as if it's just a mistake, because these Roman soldiers, they, they dealt with death. Um, they had blood on their hands, and these Roman soldiers knew Jesus was dead. Uh, the Roman governor, Pilate, he was used to executing people. He was satisfied that Jesus was dead and actually released his body for burial. Uh, two reputable Jews, 
Joseph and uh, Nicodemus knew that Jesus was dead. They actually embalmed his body and put it in a tomb and sealed it with a large rock. That, that final symbol of separating those who are dead from those who are living, that large rock uh, sealing off that tomb, the tomb of the dead. And even his most loyal disciples knew that Jesus was dead. They just went home to grieve. Now, whatever way you read that story, you have to say, what an anticlimax. What an anticlimax. A rousing message over three years, but the king is dead. And you can't argue about the finality of death. Or can you? Well, according to John, the death and burial of Jesus was not the end of his story. We pick up in verse 1, uh, Mary Magdalene is at Jesus' tomb before dawn, in the darkness, on what we would call Sunday morning, three days after Jesus was crucified. And she discovers the tomb open and Jesus' body gone. Now, understandably, she's upset and confused and immediately reports back to Peter and John, who in turn immediately went to the tomb to see for themselves. And the question we have to ask and look at carefully then is, what did they see? Well, traditionally and historically, we've said, talked about the empty tomb, but of course that's not right because it wasn't quite empty. So Peter and John see the not quite empty tomb. Yes, the body of Jesus was gone, but his grave clothes immediately took their attention and actually become the focus of the story because they saw the grave clothes lying undisturbed and intact. Now, in those days when a person died, their body was wrapped from head to shoulders, in, from feet to shoulders rather, in linen strips. And the linen strips were soaked in a solution of aloe, which was a powdered, sweet-smelling wood, and another product called myrrh, M-Y-R-R-H. And that was a, a sort of sweet-smelling rosin or gum, which actually solidified, went, went hard. And back in chapter 19, we're told that about 34 kilograms of this stuff was used to wrap the body of Jesus. And essentially it made a cast around the body, a bit like a modern plaster cast around a broken limb. And then also the neck and head was wrapped with a separate uh, turban-like piece of cloth. So what Peter and John saw was the empty cast and the head cloth neatly folded and put to one side, just like you'd expect if someone took it off because they no longer needed it. Something really unusual had happened. Both John and Peter recognized that. If thieves had stolen the body, they would have taken the cast with them. That would have been the quickest and easiest way to make an exit. Or, or if they wanted the body without the cast, they would have had to cut all those wraps off. And chances are left chunks of flesh or, or at least left the cast and, and, the, and the strips and pieces. Or again, if Jesus had simply been unconscious and somehow or other come around after a period of time and got himself out, even if that was possible, then, then again, the wrappings would have been broken. Anyway, the point of the story is that the tomb was undisturbed except that Jesus' body was gone. And it's interesting the way John writes it because the significance of this is highlighted by John in the words he uses, the different words he uses for saying. So what did John and Peter say? Well, verse 5, if you look in there, um, 
stooping to look in, John saw the linen cloths lying there. The word there is to see or blepho, that's the Greek verb, and it means just to observe. In other words, he just roamed his eyes around and took in what his eyes could see. He observed the grave clothes with nobody. And in verse 6, Peter goes right into the tomb. Typical Peter, he just rushes in. John was a little bit hesitant, a bit nervous maybe, I don't know. But Peter just rushes in, no surprise there. And he says, but the word there is theoroeo. In other words, the same word as we use for theorizing. Peter's looking around, observes the intact tomb, except the body's missing, and he's trying to theorize or work out the significance of intact grave clothes, but no body. And then verse 8, finally, John joins Peter in the tomb and sees. And the word there is orao. In other words, it's a saying that reaches a conclusion, an understanding. So Peter and John see with understanding finally. He concludes, or they conclude, that something really supernatural has happened. Jesus had left his burial cast, somehow or other come through the burial cast without damaging or disturbing it. Now, verses 9 and 10 are also important. Um, and it's, it's a difficult verse to understand, verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So the immediate impact of the facts on Peter and John were that they believed. They saw, they theorized, and they came to conclusion. They believed. The evidence for Peter and John was mind-blowing, but compelling. And it pointed to one conclusion. Jesus was no longer dead. Jesus somehow or other had come back to life and left his tomb in the most supernatural way, not even disturbing uh, the grave clothes. Now, I think the, the, the emphasis of verse 9 is that they didn't understand everything, but they understood enough to know that the grave of Jesus was no longer their focus. They didn't have a clue where Jesus was, but they knew where he wasn't. He was no longer in his grave. And so verse 10, they did what you'd expect. They went home to think further about the matter. No longer was the grave the focus of their attention. And I think the point that John's making is this, that John's emphasis is that the disciples' belief in the resurrection of Jesus came first, based on the physical evidence before their eyes. They didn't manufacture a resurrection story to agree with expectations they already had from Old Testament scriptures. I think that's the, the point of verse 9. It wasn't as if they already knew and had clear understanding from the Old Testament that, that Jesus would rise from the dead. No, they, they didn't understand that. That, was, that only came later with prompting for Jesus, from Jesus. Only then did they understand that various Old Testament scriptures, which they had read previously without understanding, now became clear and added to what they'd seen physically with their own eyes, the evidence that Jesus had come back from the dead. Jesus had riven, risen from the grave. So that's the story to this point, but the story continues. And we switch focus uh, to a very incredibly personal experience for Mary. 
and the experience builds around the point, King Jesus is alive. And she, she says, I've seen the Lord. King Jesus is alive. I've seen the Lord. And this changes everything. Now, when you look at verse 11, it's just sad, isn't it? Uh, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Remember, it's, it's pre-dawn. It's in the darkness, no lights. Uh, you can just imagine the scene. Mary was a deeply troubled woman. Now, we know from other parts of the record of John that, that she was known, she was a woman with history. She was known for her sexual sin. She was one of the ladies about town, to use a, a sort of modern term. Uh, she was a woman who therefore was condemned by her, her, her uh, fellow Jewish citizens, condemned and rejected by the Jewish religious leaders, condemned by God's law. Mary had only a bleak future of hopelessness to look forward to. But Mary had found new hope of salvation and belonging in the teaching of Jesus. Uh, it's interesting that uh, you might recall only a few days earlier, the extent of the hope that Mary had now placed in Jesus was expressed in her pouring a, a super expensive oil on him. Uh, we're told in the text that it cost about a year's worth of wages to buy the stuff. And there was Mary just pouring all over Jesus. It was a demonstration of her total commitment to Jesus and her total trust in Jesus. In Jesus, she saw something that gave her hope when the Jewish religious system, when her own religion left her hopeless and despairing. But Mary before us again this morning in this story. Here she is, standing in the darkness, weeping bitterly. Her hopes had died and were buried with Jesus. That's an incredible statement, isn't it? Her hopes had died and were buried with Jesus. And she's left weeping, despairing, engulfed by both physical and spiritual darkness as she recognizes that with Jesus' body gone, she can't even grieve properly. Not only is, is the hope that she had in Jesus' cause gone, but the body's gone. She can't even grieve. She can't touch him. She can't do that process that we all know to be such an important part of, of relational things, even at the end of a relationship. Well, at that very point, Mary's darkness and despair is dispelled. First, Two angels appear to her, and then Jesus himself appears and speaks directly so that she knows he is alive. And it's just a very, very moving uh, story that John records. Here's this woman, and you wonder why she's even there, because if any woman was going to be there, and that's quite countercultural for, for a Jewish story to record a woman as a, as, a, as a focus, but if any woman was going to be there, you might expect a Jesus' mother to be there. But no, this uh, woman with history, with dubious character, this woman who had put so much hope in, in Jesus, is here in despair and weeping. And yet when Jesus speaks to her, we can just sense the renewed hope and joy surging through her body uh, and becomes a confident statement to the disciples. I have seen the Lord. So what Peter and John had derived from physical evidence 
Mary learned directly both as revealed truth and experiential truth. Both used both those terms last week when we speak. Jesus engages Mary relationally. Mary, he speaks to her. He calls her by her name. And her troubled, dark heart is filled with truth and light and life. Not only is Jesus not in the grave anymore, but he's alive. He's out there. He's on the loose. And he's engaging Mary and replacing, dispelling darkness and despair with hope and light and life. Look at verse 17, a wonderful verse in there. Uh, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. Uh, I guess she, she must have thrown herself at his feet or something like that. Do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now that's a, a, that's a chunk a block full of, of wonderful things type verse. Go to my brothers, says Jesus. Tell them, go to my, I'm ascending to my father and your father. Your father, Mary. Your God, Mary. The significance of this verse, well, so many things could be said about it. Jesus is confirming that he has done what he said he would do as God's king and savior just a week earlier. Remember back to uh, chapter 14, and that was only a few days earlier, five or six days earlier. Chapter 14, Jesus said to his uh, people, do not be troubled in heart. I'm going away in death to prepare a place in heaven for you. And then verse six of that same chapter, over that meal that night, only, only six days earlier, Jesus also said, I am the way the truth and the life. No person comes to the Father but through me. Now, in the words of a Colin Buchanan song, um, what Mary, the lost and despairing, needs most is to find the way back to God. What Mary, the confused and deceived, needs most is the truth that will set her free from sin and death. What Mary, the dead in her sins, needs most is life, eternal, abundant life. And verse 17 here tells us that Mary had all her needs met in Jesus' death and resurrection. All her needs were confirmed as being met in this one encounter. Jesus' resurrection had changed everything for Mary and the first disciples. Jesus in speaking to her, in being there, confirms that he is God. Who else has power and authority to come and go in his world as he needs to? A death could not hold him. And now he says he will go back to his father and to his throne in heaven, having completed his salvation task. Powerful, irrefutable, compelling evidence that Jesus is God. And Jesus confirms that Mary was right to put her confidence and hope in him. Both she and, her, and the disciples are now in new relationship with the Father through Jesus. 
They have new family with Jesus. My brothers, says Jesus, they have new family with Jesus. Your father, your God, he speaks to Mary. She who was distant and cut off from God because of her sin is now a new relationship with the Father, personal relationship with the Father through Jesus. New family, new security, which guarantees they will go to be with the Father as Jesus will, as he ascends, so they will ascend and enjoy a resurrection with Jesus. Now, friends, um, there's the evidence, compelling evidence. And the evidence that King Jesus has risen and is alive and is on the loose still demands a verdict from you in 2020. That's John's purpose in writing the biography. We'll see that next week. Uh, John's purpose in writing this biography of the life of Jesus is to present the evidence that he believes will cause people to believe that Jesus is God and Savior and as a result find eternal life. John's convinced that if people will only give the evidence a chance, then they will be brought, they will theorize like Peter, and they'll be brought to a position of understanding that conclusion that Jesus is alive, Jesus is God, Jesus is God's Savior, and that. Therefore, everything is changed. Now, here's a problem. The evidence is compelling, yet so many refuse to believe. Why is that, do you think? Well, it's very common to blame a lack of belief on a lack of evidence. But that's just not right. The evidence is compelling. More likely, in reality, they don't believe because they don't like the implications of the evidence. They don't like the implications of belief. See, here's how it works. Because if you believe in Jesus, if you believe that Jesus is God, that he really did beat death, that he really came back, that he's now alive and on the loose and at large in his own world, ruling as God's king and savior, then that must force an admission from you. The admission must be that I am not a good person, that I of my own character, my own nature, am entitled to heaven. And that I can sort of do some sort of bargain with God saying, well, of course, I'm not as good as I could be, but I'm not as bad as I could be either. And so I'm entitled to heaven. Now, belief in the resurrection of Jesus forces to to admit that that's not the case. Jesus died to bring people like you and me into heaven. And then there's belief in Jesus forces the recognition that if Jesus is king and savior, then I must live all of life under his authority. And that means, and this is the really hard bit for most people, that means giving up my autonomy. There can't be two kings. I can't be king of my life and be autonomous and at the same time claim to live under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is so hard for us. We don't want to give up our autonomy. 
And the irony of the Easter story is in the words of Jesus in verse 15. He says, who are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? And, and here's the problem for us. We long to be accepted with God. We are seeking someone who will make us acceptable with God, who will take us home to heaven. We long to have security and hope, given that we're so fragile and given that death is a certain part of life. But we'd rather miss out on the way, the truth and the life, rather than give up our autonomy, rather than totally commit to Jesus as Mary did. So often people turn and walk away from Jesus, even though he's the one that they've been seeking all their lifetime. So friends, Jesus' resurrection changes and it demands we change how we think about him how we think about ourselves. I started by saying that death is very much a part of our life. Well, I end by saying that Jesus backs the trend and offers us the life that is very much a part of his death. This is why Easter is so offensive because there's not room for King me and King Jesus. But this is also why Easter is so wonderful. At the same time, Jesus says to Mary, why are you weeping in despair, Mary? There is no, nothing so out of place as weeping in despair in the presence of the resurrected Jesus who brings life and light and hope and security. So, Easter, is it? something that will be offensive to you or something that will be wonderful to you. Hopefully it's something that begins as an offense to you and challenges you and then reshapes you so it becomes wonderful to you. But the question remains a very simple, bland, but profound question. What will the Jesus who came back from the dead be to you? Thank you very much uh, for listening. I'm going to uh, pray and hopefully you'll join me in prayer and then we'll uh, throw back to Rob. Uh, Lord, we echo your words to Mary. Why are you weeping? We identify with Mary, Lord, caught up in sometimes the despair of life. Uh, sometimes, Lord, we're, we're just reduced by our fragility to sadness and weeping. We thank you, Lord, at that very point of need, you spoke into Mary's life, dispelled her despair, and made hope, new hope and confidence and security and life surge through her body. And I pray, Lord, that you might do that for each one of us listening in today, that you might re-energize us for those of us who are already uh, committed to serving you fill us again lord with the admiration of your love for us and a desire to serve you better and for those lord who might be listening this morning who still want to be king in their own lives lord confront and break down that opposition so that they might seek you the living lord and know life life eternal life abundant 
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.